digital being digital banking being one percent finished is a is a mindset. It is a uh, kind of a provocation that actually there's more of this journey ahead of us than behind us. And for the organisations who think it's a hundred percent, they're deeply wrong. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie and I'm the host of today's episode. Joining me today is David Brewer, CEO of 11FS. Since David's dream of being a sports person was crushed along with the ligaments in his knee, and he had to get a proper job, his words, not mine. He has worked in pretty much every angle of the financial services industry, never losing that competitive desire to drive forwards and win. Having pitched, established and run billion pound transformations for some of the biggest financial services companies on the planet, the realisation that digital financial services is only 1% finished has spurred his desire to establish an organisation that can actually support the industry through its greatest challenge. During the episode, David and I, but more David, will be talking about what fintech is, where it came from and where it's going. David also reveals what is in store for the digital services world when the other 99% of it is complete. So without further ado, everyone, it's David Brewer. David, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. It is so good to have you here. No worries at all. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I'm going to um, kick off the episode with um, getting you to just introduce yourself, I guess, um, introducing 11FS, explaining what it's all about, you know, the services that you guys provide, and perhaps your role within the company as well. Yeah, no worries at all. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know me, my name is David Breer. I'm the CEO here at 11FS. Um, who are we? Um, we're sort of the, the sort of pirates of the high seas when it comes to the uh, the financial services and, and this consultancy side, really. We started the business back in 2016, uh, really on the thesis that actually digital and digitized were fundamentally different things. Uh, we've seen lots of people in financial services who have attempted to digitize themselves, spending billions of pounds in the process, but not really understanding what digital was. And, and you might be listening to this going, 
what the hell does that mean? Like, what's the difference between digital and digitized? Because like they just they, they sound similar words to me. Like, what does that actually mean? And what we mean by that really is that most big corporate organizations have been wildly successful. I mean, you don't get to be a corporate without being wildly successful, right? So, and actually, all of those organizations started with a a, a deep customer purpose in, in terms of why, why they existed, solving a customer problem, fixing an industry issue, whatever. Um, but over 300 years of success in the financial services industry, they've sort of lost that purpose. They've lost that reason to, to be. And, and then that coupled with actually a, a fundamental change in the landscape. You know, no longer is it about physical money or, you know, a nice man with a briefcase turning up at your house telling you how wealthy you are every six months or, you know, branch networks and, you know, waiting in queues. All of these things which were were understood and were able to be managed. It's about digital. It's not, you know, and digital isn't just about a website and an app. It's like, you know, fundamentally rethinking not only the the services that you deliver to your customers, but but more significantly that because because that's just features. More significantly than that, it's about the the total rethink of the operational capability of an organization. And that's hard. Like that really comes down to like, a lot of talk about AI and blockchain and fintech and blah 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 blah. But at the heart of all of this is is cultural change of an industry. Uh, and that's the stuff that I'm absolutely fascinated about. Um, weird given my background, but uh, but at the same time, I think organizations fundamentally are just people. Uh, and actually what happens in those organizations is fascinating to me. It, it is such a complex topic. And I, I think that, you know, these traditional businesses and companies that, um, you know, have done done well in the past, it's from what I, you know, I guess it's difficult to change not only a culture, but a kind of way of working as well. And combine that on top of, um, you know, moving into uh, digitalization or digital, you know, all these different factors, you know, it's a complex layering. And, you know, it, it is a just um, a really interesting topic. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, you know, to go more into this episode to unpick it all a little bit. Um, but before we do move on to the next question, you've just talked about your your like previous career or profession. Would you mind just explaining a little bit about that before we do go on? Yeah, no worries at all. I mean, as you can, um, as anybody can sort of tell listening to me, I'm not your typical banker. Um, and, and actually, my background, as much as I look, I've, I've done that but prior to 11FS, I uh, ran a big management consultancies, uh, global financial services side. Uh, I've worked as a banker for six years in one of the big banks in the UK. I've worked as a uh, in a big insurance company in the UK as well. Uh, but I did all of that stuff because I had to, if I'm honest with you. like My, my background before that was more about playing sports. Uh, I was really big into uh, playing all different types of sports, played at county level for a bunch of them. And and basketball was very much my uh, my sort of game of choice. You know, I, I loved it. It's, uh, I've got um, two left feet when it comes to dancing or anything particularly rhythmic, uh, as my wife will definitely uh, uh, sort of testify to. But, but actually playing basketball was a, 
as close to a, an, an art form as I've ever been been good at because it's such an expressionful, graceful thing to, to be able to do. But unfortunately, um, you know, studying to uh, sports science and human biology and uh, sort of aiming to fall back into physiotherapy if, if sports didn't work out, uh, three, uh, three pins or three ligaments in my left knee and six pins later, uh, I had to, um, I had to get a proper job, unfortunately. So, uh, my dad gave me a stack of papers and, uh, my dad was a very practical guy, like super, uh, like look, pick an industry that when you come out of your educational process is still going to be broken because there's no point going and trying to learn something that everybody else knows how to do. Equally, there's no point coming out of university trying to fix an industry that's fixed. So find an industry that you think will still be, you know, in a, in a point of flux. Um, my dad was in an oil and, oil and gas industry. So I was like, well, oil and gas would be an obvious choice. Uh, the internet looked like it was going to be a thing. So like actually digital and, and computing uh, and financial services were going through a pretty rocky time. And uh, I sort of plumbed for two of those, those things. So I went to study uh, computing uh, and really sort of majoring on how technology can be applied to financial services. Um, what I would say, if I'm honest with you, and I, and I say this to anybody who listens, is like I fundamentally think hard work solves most problems and that's not be, me being some sort of capitalistic you know whip everybody from from behind type mentality but actually the thing that was missing from my mentality because i was naturally good at sports uh i didn't really have to try that hard to to, to succeed you know and actually when you're playing a, a sport success is relatively binary you know you you win or you lose in that sense you you succeed or you fail um but actually taking that mentality into a more of an academic career, uh, I kind of just coasted to start with. And it was only really when I came out of my undergrad degree and I got a 2-1 and don't get me wrong, you know, a 2-1 is a, is a very good, uh, a very good accolade to, for, for people to achieve. But I come out of that realizing, standing there with sort of, you know, five of my friends who had been on the course and they all sort of got a similar grade and, you know, then there's like 700,000 other people in the UK with that grade, with like me, trying to find a job. And there's somebody who sort of prides themselves as being an individual in that sense. I realized really I'd, I just wasted a massive opportunity. I, I did what I did in sports, but didn't get the results in that way because I just wasn't, you know, I'm good at maths, I'm good at computing, I'm good at those things, but I'm not naturally as gifted as I was at, at running and jumping and throwing things, you know. Um, and if I'm honest with you, that was that was my moment. That was the defining moment of my career really was, uh, and it sounds stupid when you say it out loud, which is like the, the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, and that's literally all I've done since then is I've worked harder than anybody else in the room, uh, for what we're doing, not because it creates it as a competition and I want to beat them, but actually, because actually if I work really hard and put in the effort, then throughout my career, you know, the places that I've been putting in the most amount of effort to, to achieve a thing are the places where it's been most recognized across the board and where opportunities just present themselves. So, uh, yeah, from there, I worked as hard as I could. I got a double first on my undergrad, uh, on my master's. Uh, and then I've just, I just worked as hard as I can all the way through my career. You have had an incredible career journey. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your double first year masters. That is a massive accomplishment. Um, but yeah, I can see what you mean about hard, like hard work. I think if you do put in that hard work, you build up a reputation for yourself. And you know, if you're putting 110% into everything that you're doing, doesn't matter if you 
you see it as a long-term um, career move or not. You, you know, you don't know what you're going to end up doing, you know, in the future. I'm sure that when you were playing sports, you didn't think that you would, you know, be doing what you're doing now. But, you know, at the same time, you could be, you know, playing sports with somebody that, you know, has a, a massive fintech business now. And you've built that reputation with that person because, you know, you've worked super hard and have good sportsmanship and a nice person and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, I do really agree with what you're saying, working hard um, uh, build a, a real it, career. It's, um, it's amazing that um, how that mentality is absent in many people though which is um and, and i think the, the the things you sort of touch on there a, a little bit around look uh success isn't like an overnight thing success is a uh a, a level of resilience to resistance and overcoming those things in that sense you know actually um we didn't make 11 fs the success it is today like in the first 15 minutes of founding the business it's take taking like patience and perseverance and you know successes yes but like losses and dealing with losses in that sense in terms of clients or uh employees or founders or whatever like actually you know the the thing that i take most from from sports in that sense and this is something that i really i've got a 10 year old i've got a eight year old uh josh my 10 year old plays plays football now and you know ivy's really getting into uh gymnastics and different types of things it's like actually getting them to realize that you know, the, the, I, I think the um, society is f- so full of of trife little little sayings, like "practice makes perfect." It's like everybody knows that saying. Everybody knows that practice makes perfect. But actually, practice makes perfect. Like you, you have to practice something so much to be able to master that. Whether it's doing a cartwheel or whether it's curling a ball into the top, top corner. Um, the only thing that actually determines uh, success in that sense is your attitude and the effort that you put into something. And now, I mean, uh, and I, I feel like this is a conversation that I have with my son all the time, which is like, dude, the great thing about that, those two things is like nobody determines those things other than you. Like you control your attitude. You, you determine how you, uh, the whole sort of respond versus react thing with it when it comes to attitude, whether it's bad news or losses or changes or it's raining or you know that person doesn't like me so they're not passing like you choose how you respond to that therefore your attitude is always your decision right and then who controls your effort who controls how much effort you put into something whether you you turn up on time or whether you turn up early or whether you do extra training or whether you you know you stay behind work or you like all of these things are are in your control and I, I think the I think the hard thing, the hardest points in my career, uh, and it's easy now when I look back on it, and it's easy now that I can go, look, like, you know, I'm going to finish early this week week because I worked triply hard two weeks ago. It's really hard to make those decisions when you're not running a business for yourself, but you're you're feeling like somebody else is in control of your destiny. And that's that's really difficult. But I think that's why it comes back to, it's like, with that attitude, with that effort, you've got to... Your confidence comes from you. You've got to find a way of being your own wind in your own sails in that sense. Because, and that's not about like, I'm so good at this or, you know, like, look at how smart I am or like, you know, bravado and, you know, whatever. It's about instilling belief in yourself that actually you can achieve these things if you're 
if you're passionate, if you're positive, if you're persistent, uh, actually what you're doing in that sense. So when you succeed, don't get too excited about it. Like you haven't made it yet. You're not some like global superstar or whatever type thing. Um, but when you fail, you, you, you failed, but you're not a failure. You've got to kind of delineate those things because it's all about the, the persistence. When I was playing basketball, and it's a lot of shots, like we lost a lot of games, but we were great. You know, we were a great team. We, but you do that, you lose. You've got to come to terms with being able to lose, but have the, the mental resilience to keep going, to keep moving forwards. Business is exactly the same. Like actually on a daily basis, I will mess something up or we will lose something. But equally, we will win amazing things and we've got amazing people who are doing amazing things. And actually, whether that's me messing up or somebody else messing up or whatever, you've got to create a, an environment that allows those things to, to, to move forward. Yes, like if everybody messed up every hour of every day, we probably wouldn't be in business for very long. Um, but actually, losing is part of succeeding. Uh, and I think actually you only really realize that when you've gone through it a number of times and get to that point. It's like the advice that your mum and dad used to give to you, where it was like, yeah, whatever, mum and dad, I'll never turn into you. But you do, you turn into your mum and dad, you you learn those same experiences and you find out that actually doing it is the best way of figuring out. Mm, yeah, no, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I'm a bit of a career change myself. So when I left school, I qualified as a hairdresser, but during my training, I would spend, you know, months going into years really scrubbing um the skirting boards really getting those clean um and just doing really rubbish jobs like that but as you were saying resilience builds resistance and looking back now when I was doing all those not pleasant jobs you know that I can see now that's what I was doing but at the time it didn't feel like that at all I was very impatient yeah I wanted to be the top stylist in London and all those kind of things. But um um yeah it's all these it's, it's interesting that it doesn't happen overnight. It is, it's interesting that. I mean my my first job was cleaning boats. Like I I grew up in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere in Norfolk. Like my my first job was in fact I dragged my best friend at the time along because his his mum begged me to get him a job as well because she thought it'd be good for him to go and do and we were like we were cleaning boats for people do you know what i mean it was like a random thing to do in fact you know after that i went and worked at mcdonald's for a little while but but actually you've got a i got no stars by the way i never that's like one of my one of my if i ever go and give like career advice uh, at my high school or my university or whatever it's uh, and i did a spate of them for different people it's like I have the lofty accolade of working at McDonald's for three months and getting zero stars. You know, like I'm, I don't even think that's impo- that's possible anymore. You know, so um, but 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 you do these things to realize, well, actually, is that what I want to do? And actually, can I do that? You know what I mean? Like so, uh, and also, I mean, I, I think this is a good life lesson for people more broadly. Is like I don't think anybody really has a a perfect career you know actually i think you you go into jobs and also i'd I'd say people kind of idolize organizations and 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 want to work at uh you know google or an apple or whatever like i i've worked at some organizations where you learn way more when times are hard than when times are brilliant you know having joined um I was having a lovely time in in insurance. Like it was fantastic. Like I was in a fantastic team and Aviva was a great company. And, you know, there was an amazing change that was happening. 
Um, but I just felt really comfortable. Like I felt like I could do it forever. So I decided to go into banking uh, and did that in 2008. And it's like, you know, the crisis just kicked off and like I'm jumping into financial services, uh, jumping into banking and the whole world melts down. But in all of that chaos was was opportunities. It was just whether, you know, the opportunities are always there. They're always presenting themselves. It's just whether you have the the ability to tune into them or not. And when everybody else is freaking out, whether you can stay calm and, and actually, um, you know, identify these things. Yeah, take more of a pragmatic approach towards it and you know, not lose your head, um, which I get the vibe from you that you know, you're know you very grounded and um, level-headed. Do you think, I'm always so interested to know like, the answer to this question and get pe- different people's takes on it. Is that something that has come with time for you from experience or um, like in the different jobs and roles that you've had or like I myself have recently uh, started meditating or doing my best to in the morning just to, you know, remember to stay level headed and not, you know, lose my head when I'm, you know, got lots of exams going on at uni. Um, but can you share with us how, how you're able to, you know, be a, a badass CEO and keep your team and business running in smooth order? Um, I, I think two two separate things really from 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 my perspective is like actually how do I how do I manage a team um, however they want to be managed really like actually what I what I kind of find is the best part about anything you know you wouldn't think this from the fact that I'm talking so much now but the the best thing to create relationships is listening like and actually when it comes to being a uh, and I, I wouldn't even be so bold as saying I'm a I'm a good manager. Uh, I, I think I try and listen to what people want, and then do that as most as a, as I can. You know, the the difficulty is is sometimes you can't do that, and actually, what you've got to do is create a trust of a relationship with people where when you can't, you can explain why, and actually that that works. You know, you kind of hope you've got enough credibility with people that actually when you have to disappoint them, because inevitably you will do, whether it's employees or whether it's direct uh, one direct report or uh, an industry or a client, like whatever, like actually you've got to build credibility to be able to, to have, to give recommendations or to give bad news in that sense. So, so I kind of, I manage my team really, I, I think there's like a spectrum between macro management, which is like, Hey dude, you got this. Like, I'm here for you, like shout when you've got a problem to micromanagement of like, I'm looking at what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, like you were on this website for 15 minutes and 45 seconds. I am categorically as far on the macro management as you can possibly come across because I genuinely believe you hire amazing people and then you try and just get out of the way as much as you can. Uh, I provide people the the air cover and the space because actually the the sort of missing ingredient, uh, you know, our mission at 11FS is literally just to unleash talent. Yeah, we work in financial services, but but our mission really is just if I hire the best team that I can hire, and that's not necessarily like, you know, you buy in talent and it's, you know, hire and fire and blah, 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 blah. But if you bring in great people, 
and then provide the environment for them to bring in great people for their team and for their team to be great people and blah, 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 mm-hmm. then you find extraordinary things happen, you know? And really that's the, that's the story of 11FS. Like we've created a, uh, an environment where a couple of hundred people can outperform, uh, you know, management consultancies and consultancies with thousands and thousands of people. I mean, we're, we're winning work away from much more established people with much more people to do the work and with much more money to do the work so like why are we winning like we're winning not just because of what we're doing but but the fundamentally the way in which we're doing it so um i think when it comes to myself though i think i'm i think i'm very lucky just from like a dna perspective that actually like uh i don't take anything too much to heart I don't take anything too seriously in that sense. Don't don't get me wrong. Like 11FS is like my third kid. You know, I mean, like in that in the sense of like I'll do anything for it in that sense. But it doesn't matter what the situation is, whether it's you know we could be in a a legal matter or we could you know have be pitching for something amazing and it you know really will make or break our quarter or I don't know. Like I, I could be getting shouted at publicly by a publication or whatever type thing um i will sleep perfectly every night uh it will take something uh ridiculous like my daughter coming in and jumping on my head in the middle of the night to wake me up and and actually i think with a good night's sleep everything seems fine in the morning so uh, i i think you've got to stay calm under you know whatever pressure in because as a ceo of a business i think you sort of set the tone for everybody else Uh, i think if i was flighty or aggressive or whatever then actually I think it, it creates a, a mold for, for where the rest of the organization should be. Uh, and for me, I, I think calmness under everything is sensible because actually, you know, there's not many things that being more emotional about them and less rational is a good thing um, because essentially it, it kind of clouds your judgment when it comes to, to making decisions. Like, don't get me wrong though, I'm, I'm one of the most um, passionate people you can come across when it comes to the problems the change that we need to see in the industry but then i'm cold-hearted rational about the way in which it should be done because actually that's the way you you get people to join a movement you know this is a this is a fundamental inflection point we're seeing in the industry this is change that can impact millions of people's lives billions of people's lives around the, around the planet uh, and that i'm deeply passionate about but there's no way I'm going to convince a bunch of people to join us either, you know, literally joining the business or believe the things that we believe, unless you've got a, a very well thought through compelling argument with it as well. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that if you know that you're doing an incredible job at work and um, you know, you're not making mistakes more than you are, you know, doing a good job. If something bad happens, it's, you know, the world is not going to end. So you may as well get a good night's sleep, as you're saying, and go back the next day and do a good job. I think that's really important for people to remember. The world is not going to end. Um, and what else was I going to say? Yeah, you know, when you are making decisions in a business environment, a quote that I've always loved and it stuck with me is when emotion goes up IQ goes down and that's you know I can't go by that rule too but that that does that does that does happen though and actually I mean uh, again I, I 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether you've ticked the explicit box on on iTunes yet, but you might have to bleed me out a couple of times uh, in this next piece that we're, we're going to go through. But but I, I there was there's a problem with dealing with eleven FS. I shared my view and and I did it very passionately. I think I used the word maybe like fifteen times because my to your point, my IQ went down because my emotion went up in that sense. But but actually that's that's about creating an environment with with people, a team of people who are aligned behind the purpose of what that is. And I, you know, I, I picked up with it wasn't like, you know, at somebody, it was in exasperation about the problem that we're dealing with. But like the three of us at the end of the meeting were like, look, this is the situation, it's not you, and da, 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 and I love you, and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, and and actually, I think you've got to create a an environment where people can can be passionate and show candor without it being uh, a problem in that sense you know mm-hmm. um but it's a, it is an interesting dynamic isn't it because safety in having open conversations and, and you know showing like real candor i actually think is a, a a problem that many organizations face which is if you don't create a space for that well it it protracts problems you know, if you don't, uh, my my family, um, uh, my my wife really struggled with this when uh, when me and her got got married because me and my mum would be like everything is fine, da, 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 and then we argue about something, and then twenty seconds later we're talking about lunch, da, 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 you know, like I really I I'm a big believer in like address it and then move on, you know, like mm-hmm. don't hold grudges, don't hold anything, but if you don't address it, then actually very often the conclusion that somebody comes to on their own is far worse than the conclusion that actually you'll come to by just talking to somebody about it. Um, we're big believers. We say this a lot. And actually, I mean, it's the first page of our onboarding, which is like positive intent. If you believe that the people that you're working with have positive intent in terms of the outcome they were looking for, the approach that they're taking or why they're asking a question or what they're doing, like if you presume it's positive, well, it fundamentally changes the way in which you handle failure or conflict or anything in that sense. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's sort of small nuances of the culture and the environment that you create, but they have such a such a significant impact in terms of the, the, the day-to-day. Excellent. Presume it's positive. I love that. Uh, before we move on to the next question, because we're coming up to application season in the whole kind of like law world, I just want people to remember that it is resilience to resistance, right? So, you know, if you're getting rejections, then, you know, it's such a normal process, you know, you just got to keep going. Yeah. Okay. So would you mind just explaining what fintech is um, and some of the popular ways it's being used by ordinary people and businesses? Yeah, sure. So, so fintech is um, it's kind of a, a mashup of financial services and technology, uh, and really, this is a a term that was sort of first coined really on the advent of of mobile applications being used as a way of of kind of determining the the the, the future of, of financial services. It, it was sort of born out of. Uh, a number of changes that we were were seeing in terms of the the predisposition of people to use the internet or internet channels to access financial services and that really sort of started with internet banking you know browser based go and look at my balance and blah 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 um but pretty much every slice of financial services now has been has been disrupted by technology in exactly the same way as pretty much every industry ever has been 
disrupted by the internet. Um, and, but it's it's a very interesting times to be working in that space because what we've seen is, and actually post the financial crisis in 2008, we've seen real scale of regulatory change happen initially in the UK, um, the, the FCA, the PRA, the Bank of England, the, the major sort of regulatory bodies that manage the, the UK financial services landscape uh, was given a, particularly the FCA, was given a competition mandate. Now, what that means is that actually the 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 FCA is not just there to to make sure big businesses are doing what they should be doing and you know staying out of trouble and treating customers fairly, but to actively promote an environment uh, that creates competition. Because the the thinking was that with great competition comes really great outcomes for the for the consumers, um, and and fundamentally puts the the pressure on the industry to continually change, continually evolve. Now, as that's played out in the UK, we've got you know great fintech banks popping up like Starling and Monzo and Revolut uh, in the retail space, but we've got brilliant players like Coconut and Tide in SME. Uh, we've even got people disrupting areas of pensions like Pension B, who will look at if you worked in five or six different organizations, they will consolidate all of your pensions into one spot to make sure that it's being managed effectively. Now, every slice of financial services, whether it's retail or SME or wealth or insurance or um, you know corporate banking or investment banking is being touched on by uh, by technology. Um, and that change that happened here in the UK is then rippled out into, well, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has changed how they regulate or HKMA in the in Hong Kong has changed how they regulate. The Fed in America has changed. And, and that change has really created a, a, a very fruitful environment for, for new players to get into the market. In markets, that regulation would have just been incredibly prohibitive or incredibly costly uh, to get into before. So, yeah, it is a... It's really a, an amazing kind of crossroads of points between an amazing technology industry, fantastic creative industries with everything that you can do with design and everything that goes with it, with a steeped heritage in in financial services and, and, and the regulatory side of things in that sense. And this is really why London has been the, the kind of epicenter of that change, because actually you don't have to go very far from you know, the the FCA to the Bank of England to a great tech hub to incredibly creative talent. Um, and actually, that all within the M25 is so much more powerful than where everybody else has these things. You know, just in the US, Silicon Valley is where the money is. New York is where the financial services is. I mean, they're an eight-hour flight from one another. You know, like that's a, a very different prospect in that sense. I was going to ask you a bit later, actually, what do you think the fintech capital of the world is? Is 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 London? Is us? Uh, I mean, I'd say that the sad, the sad thing is, I'd say um, in many instances, in the way in which London is ahead of the game, or the UK more broadly is ahead of it, we've got a a great heritage of inventing many things, um, and we did so much good work with the regulations and the effort and the investment and everything. But I would say the US is the leader right now because actually for all of the benefits of the UK, there's not enough people here to sustain the the level of investment that actually somewhere like the US can. And arguably because of all of the, the good infrastructure we've got here, there are less opportunities now uh, in that sense. Like Brexit hasn't helped, don't get me wrong, in terms of the 
the regulation when it comes to if you've got a license in the UK, you used to be able to passport that to, to Europe, which meant you know somebody could start in the UK and scale really effectively. Um, and actually, post Brexit, those things are a lot a lot more difficult. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd say that the scene right now, the the fintech community right now, uh, I'd say New York is probably flying the biggest flag. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. When I was doing, you know, like lots of commercial awareness research in the lead up to my um, training contract interviews and applications and all that, I would go on to um, banks' websites and see what new things they're doing. And something that would always flash up is open banking. And from what I understand that to be is um, a way for the regulators to increase competition. Is that correct in your saying at the moment? Tell me. Um... So, sort of. Yeah, sort of. So so the o- open banking in the UK is a, uh, a regulatory mandated thing off the back of something called PSD2. So PSD2 is a payment services directive, which actually mandated that all European banks have to expose a certain number of APIs, which is essentially putting customer data in the hands of the customer rather than in the hands of the organizations. So what that has forced open banking is, and the UK, again, this is why the UK created a a leading position in in fintech, was open banking took it a a step further in in terms of the uh, not only the banks, but engaging with the fintech community in terms of what they really needed. And really what those APIs can now do is, well, actually, it can give you transactional information. It can give you, you know, balances in terms of that sense. It can give you uh, the metadata around those payments, whether it's, you know, location or vendor or geography or whatever, you know, all these different things to create interesting services that sit sit atop of that. Because many of the problems that the incumbent banks have got is they sit on an Aladdin's cave of data, but very few of them are able to really do anything really interesting with it. Um, now, I mean, open banking has been sort of punished, if I'm honest with you. People sort of say it's like, yeah, but it's I've never heard of open banking, so why is it successful or blah, 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 blah. But, um, but I think that comes down to, well, you're probably not meant to. Like normal people aren't like most people's mums and dads don't really need to know the intricacies of how you know data gets part of what a PISP is or an ASP or whatever in terms of you know the regulatory approved people to handle that data. But actually when they start being given the ability to 
you know, click a button and in, uh, initiate a payment immediately, or that actually you can, for a mortgage value, um, for a mortgage affordability check, you could just give it access to your bank to go and check what your outgoings have been rather than having to provide PDFs and blah, blah, blah. You know, all of these little benefits that aren't really about open banking, they're about the benefit that they bring to the customer. Then the industry moves forward in that sense in terms of, we, we sort of joke, you know, it's called financial services, but it's not really much of a service industry right now. Open banking and everything that PSD2 was trying to trying to do was about establishing greater levels of, of service, but also greater levels of certainty in terms of, well, if I give you access to my data, you're not going to, you know, sell it to some random company and blah, 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 blah. So it's, um, it's all part of a process. It's all part of the evolution of the industry. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I bring that up is because I'm pretty sure it was from the 11FS podcast that, you know, it, I think this was an episode from about a year ago. Um, I think that you guys were talking about how the UK have really um, done a really good job with open banking and the US were kind of not to the standard that the UK were. That's, you know, that's the only reason I brought it up after the who is leading in this industry. Um, but I- yeah, and it, and in many in many senses they they are and they have done the you know the UK have uh, have mandated it and actually beyond just open banking in terms of exposing of data they're now going further than that and doing things like um, variable payments recurring variable payments in terms of the things that need to go on there so and all of these things if you just think of them like Lego blocks that fintech players can pull together to create compelling services for customers. Um, uh, you know, again, the way in which the US has, has tried to adopt it um, is very much kind of in the favor of the big organizations still. Uh, so that competition mandate, that that driving of change in the industry is is still a bit absent in that sense. Um, but at the same time, scale really pays off. You know, there are, there are things that have happened in the US system. There's a, a company called Venmo, which will kind of mean nothing in the UK, but Venmo is a peer-to-peer payment. Uh, network which like if we go out for dinner and like i'm feeling like, like you know we need to go halves on this thing then actually it makes it really easy for you to venmo me the payment essentially now we don't need to have that system in the uk because we've got faster payments and you can just send me the transfer of it and it does it instantly anyway um so in some instances the fragility in their system has created opportunity to build i mean venmo's are they've got I don't know, 50 million customers or something stupid, you know, they've scaled massively in the same way as something like PayPal scaled massively. But it was more about the the gaps in the system than it was innovation in the real sense. Do you think it's safe to give fintech apps, you know, access to your bank to do all of this stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the UK, again, has, has got a very good um, level of recourse in those things. So, uh, you know, the, um, the the levels of protection that you've got when you're using uh, current accounts, when you're using credit cards, even uh, the level of protection that you've got when you're using prepaid cards in the UK uh, is very good in that sense. So there is a, a safety net around uh, customers in, in terms of, uh, giving access to data, giving access to those things in, in that sense. You know, given given that there is always, you know, nefarious players in that sense. And and as digital has got bigger and bigger, 
the opportunities for fraudsters uh, gets bigger and bigger in that sense. So, I mean, we've all had those text messages from what looks like, you know, HSBC. And you're like, well, I don't even have an HSBC account. So how have you? And it's like, you know, look, people wouldn't try those things unless they were being successful in in many instances. Uh, and digital really, like anything, you know, digital has facilitated um, trial and error uh, more than anything. You know, and that doesn't matter whether it's dating uh, or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, banking, like actually it kind of requires, it allows trial and error at scale, probably easier than ever before. Like to defraud you before, I'd have to knock on your door and go, hello, I'm from whatever company, you know, um, whereas actually just dropping you a text message or sending you an email makes it easier than ever. So I think people have got to learn how to be savvy online as part of just being a normal human being these days. It used to be a an advantage, you know, you used to have Norton antivirus and blah, 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 you know, and, you know, actually all of these things that come with it. But but the advantage of an increasingly sophisticated digital world is increasingly sophisticated digital protection. Uh, and that's where I think we used to be in a world where we'll actually, you know, if somebody got into your bank, you were screwed. But actually with progressive KYC and progressive security measures, like you could get into my Monzo account and still wouldn't be able to take all my money out of my bank account because of all of the protection that they build into the system. So this is sort of, again, one of the advantages of, of banking with digital banks as opposed to banking with digitized banks is that actually they have all of the fraud potential, the KYC, uh, know your customer, the onboarding capability to, to really understand who you are and, and what you do, you know? Like if you're like, Stephanie, if you log on at four o'clock in the morning from Brazil, your bank might want to think about whether that's actually you or not, you know, uh, especially if like, you know, three hours ahead of that, you're, you know, on the high street of wherever you, whatever bar you frequent, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, they, they can use much more intelligence these days than ever before and therefore offer much more protection than ever before as well. Well, thank you. Really. Thank you for explaining that. Um why do you think that fintech has only recently uh, become a key focus and a growing trend, especially when uh, things like PayPal were launched or rolled out in what 1998, um, and internet banking like first got launched in 1997? I hope those dates are right. Tell me yeah. if I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't know. They sound about right. <laughs> well, then they're right. Let's just say that. <laughs> Fine. Um, Honestly, I think it's a the standards now of digital in all of our lives is greater than ever before. So the the bar of well, actually, um, you know, it used to be banking used to be something that was revered. Like I can I can remember uh, when I was in high school, like the banker coming in with his suit and giving away clipboards and blah, 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 in a lane. It was like, oh my God, like there's a man from a bank, you know? But every slice of the world that we live in, whether it's news or media or like, you know, delivery, like actually I used to have to go to the shops down my high street to get things. Now things come to me. Like my my expectation of, of being a, a human in 2022 is that actually the service is what I'm buying into, not just the product. You know, it, it's the brand. It's what the brand stands for. It's what the brand does for me in that sense. And where is the, 
you know, the, the choice was really, really minimal. Well, customers, it comes back to that competition peaks. Customers have got choice now. Um, and actually, the choice that you're making is not big brand A versus big brand B or C or whatever. It's like actually what many many banking organizations are struggling with is, is the fight for attention, really. And that's not just attention in financial services. It's more broadly. Like, nobody wants to do banking. Like, you know, I talk about it a lot, and I don't want to do banking. You know what I mean? Like, nobody really wants to engage with this stuff because it's boring. And, like, we've got better things to do. Like, you can stream any level of series that you want directly to your mobile phone. Why am I going to go into my financial services app and look at a pie chart? Do you know what I mean? Like, what was the – someone explain this logic to me, you know? Um, and I and I think that's the that's the thing that has sort of reset the entirety of the industry is that the bar is so much higher now for gaining uh, and engaging customers with that actually they have the choice not just of a different provider but just to completely ignore you in that sense. So you know whether it's services that I use for you know Uber where I'll press a button. Uh, and a driver in a in a car will turn up to get me to work, or whether it's Deliveroo, where a chef is essentially, you know, providing a a meal for me like I'm a king. You know, like actually now the level of expectation of financial services is not just oh look, that's my balance. You know, it's like actually I want my bank to make me better off. I want them to be thinking about my money so I don't have to. I want them to be making me uh, wealthier with what level of money that I've got. If you've got five pound, I want it to be worth six pound. If you've got 50,000, I want it to be 60,000. Like I want that organization to use their intelligence to make me better off because, you know, Uber don't just send somebody who can't drive, you know, and Deliveroo don't send you the ingredients. Like you've got to, you've got to have a service that is compelling around it. And I think the service that people want today is to not have to think about financial services, which as somebody who works in it is really depressing because like, you know, Nobody wants to talk to me at dinner party, do you know what I mean? But but at the same time, it's like that's what you want. You want the the industry to take care of you, not to try and screw you over. I mean, if if these people can not talk about you, I I mean I would take that as a win, you know, because people like to moan about stuff. And when you're causing an inconvenience, you know, you don't want to be spoken about. So um I think I would take that as a win, David. For sure. <laughs> well, rep- well, reputation works in both ways, doesn't it? You yes. want uh, they people could be talking about you for a bad reason, or they can be talking about you for a good reason. Yeah. And uh, again, again, you can determine which one of those it is. Kind of. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, what do you think are the most commonly used fintech products being adopted by financial services that you perhaps work with? Yeah, I mean, uh, payments is really where all of this stuff started. So actually, you know, you start seeing TransferWise, you know, now known as Wise, doing international remittance to allow people to send money to far fun places without all of the uh, all of the fees and the charges that come with it. Um, but uh, as we said, you know, SMEs, Tides are opening up just a ridiculous amount of accounts every month because actually they've made the onboarding journey for a new business to to start a new business easier than any of the incumbents ever ever could dream of doing. So, um, you know, in retail banking, uh, I mean, if you're in London and you're behind somebody in a bar, like, you know, five out of 10 times, they're going to be using a, a Revolut card or a Monzo card or a Starling card or something along those lines. So so I, I kind of think it's, it's sort of every slice of it. I think as... Um, 
as the generation that has really adopted fintech matures, then we're seeing you know players like Nutmeg, uh, you know investment company who help people invest for the long term. It's been bought by um, JP Morgan Chase recently, but players like Nutmeg really really helping people. Players like Free Trade who uh, help people buy stocks and shares uh, in a real simple way. Uh, you know, again, every slice of financial services is being disrupted. Even um, there's a company called Dead Happy who are a life insurance business, which is all about making life insurance and death something that you can just talk about openly. Um, because, I mean, when you're dead, it's probably too late to talk about it at that point. And that's really what they're going for. So I, I really do think it's it's not just, um, you know, proliferation in the retail space because it's less complicated. We're seeing every intricate, complicated piece of financial services being picked off. And even some of it down to like the absolute minutiae, you know, there's a uh, there's a, a fintech called Draftly, which is literally, it's a standalone overdraft fee. It's an app on your phone that if you need, you know, 1500 quid or whatever, you can hit that button and at any point get that overdraft as a, as essentially a buffer, you know, a micro loan buffer to stop you going overdrawn in your main current account. And the impact that those things can have is is really significant for people who who need access to finances. You know, that's really nice to hear, especially as you hear so many horror stories about people like, you know, the old school Wonga who would just um, do the opposite thing when you are in need of some overdraft um, money, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of payday lenders and that type of stuff that have um, you know uh, the 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 two thousand percent APRs that your horror stories that you've heard of and, and whatnot. But look, there's there's always good guys and bad guys in any industry, right? There's a there's people who will um, seek to take advantage of, of people who need help, but that's where the regulator, particularly in the UK, is is good at stepping in on those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a difficult one. Wonga didn't start off bad. In fact, actually, I remember when uh, when they first came to the market, they were doing some incredibly intelligent things with data models to to risk profile people really, really effectively. I think when you look at anything, look at the financial crisis in 2008, actually, it came down to not this company is evil or that, you know, that company is corrupt or whatever. It was the incentives for individuals that led to bad outcomes for the businesses, bad outcomes for the customers. And, you know, I think with Wonga, actually, and, and look, if you look at any bank, if all they focus on is the amount of sales they get, then actually what you find is everybody through the organization just focuses on that. And that culture permeates everything. And really, revenue is a, uh, it's an output. It's not an outcome. Like, actually, the outcome you're focusing on is, should be focusing on is, is happy customers who would recommend them to other people. Uh, if you get that, then actually, naturally, your output from that will be healthy revenue because you're helping people to achieve something. Um, I think when people just focus on the output rather than the outcome, that's when the incentives get really, really misaligned. This actually kind of touches on to my next question, I suppose. Um, what do you think are the main legal, ethical and practical risks of FinTech? Um, and I was thinking perhaps we could use a case study like Klarna or Stripe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, um, you know, Klarna, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a buy now, pay later business. Um, 
And buy now, pay later in itself is not something that's particularly innovative, in, you know, really. I mean, if you go to any uh, furniture store, you know, DFS or whatever, kind of across the lands, then, you know, these guys have been selling you a, uh, a settee for nothing for like a decade and then you pay for it over 72 months or whatever it is. And often it's zero percent. Um, the sort of theory with buy now, pay later is not really about whether somebody buys something or not. It's whether the basket size is bigger because of buying it over a period of time. Um, and that's okay when you're thinking about, well, a thousand pounds for a sofa over 72 months or whatever it is. But when people start buying a crop top or a new hat, like on buy now, pay later and spreading that payment out over six or seven months, like the the worry really from an industry perspective, particularly at the moment, because it doesn't show any credit footprint at all, is that actually people can get into tiny bite by tiny bite, get into pretty significant debt without really realizing that they were. There's a point, you know, a lot of people talk about from an experiential perspective about, uh, you know, removing friction. Like actually Uber was a great example of this. It's like Uber was all about removing friction. I didn't have to like stand on the corner and like put my arm out anymore. And then I didn't have to get my credit card out and pay for the taxi when we got there. All of the friction was removed because I press a button and it does the thing, right? Um, but actually in financial services, some friction is probably not a bad thing because if I mentally get into the, the place where actually look, I can I can buy anything I want on Amazon and it turns up the next day and there's no psychological commitment to that, well, actually, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? From a society perspective, should we be allowing that? Or from a financial services industry perspective, should we be creating some friction, creating some barriers? And this is where Buy Now Pay Later is a, is a group of, uh, uh, of financial instruments, which really you know, is something between an overdraft and a lending product, um, really sort of has, has bumped into issues. Now, to Klarna's uh, benefit, you know, as much as they've got Snoop Dogg advertising them and all the different types of stuff that they've been doing and scaled wildly successfully because of the uh, the partnerships that they've done. And it's not just them. And there's, there's others uh, in the US who have done, you know, amazing partnerships with higher value things. Uh, you know, somebody, uh, one of the providers is partnered with Peloton, therefore, you know, buying a Peloton, 1400 pounds or whatever it is and then spreading that out that seems really palatable to people um but to kind of you know um credit they actually have proactively engaged with the regulator they're they're seeking places to uh to make sure that there is evidenceable uh outcomes for the customer and actually the regulation in the uk now is, is shifting towards that as well only last week there was an announcement around it's starting to have an impact uh, impact from your credit score perspective and everything that really sort of goes with it. So I do think there is an ethical piece there, which is like, look, if I give you, if I give you twenty thousand pounds credit and you go and spend that all and get into debt, well, actually, should I have not let you do that, or should it be your problem because you've done it? Um, and there's very different differing opinions on that, which is, I mean, it comes down to uh, how much we need to police the individual you know if you want to go buy that handbag who am i to stop you going and buying that handbag right um but at the same time the thing that the businesses need to consider whether it's Klarna or you know lloyd's banking group or anybody is is affordability like actually 
just from a business perspective, I need to know if you're going to go drop a thousand pounds on a handbag that you're good for paying that back over a period of time. Uh, whether you do or not, it's kind of your decision. But actually, default loans is not a good outcome for anybody. It's not a good outcome for the customer. It's not a good outcome for the business because you know if you spent a thousand pounds on a handbag and then defaulted, well, that's not good for your credit history. And that won't be good for you in the long term in that sense. But for the business, well, they've lost out on a thousand pounds, you know, and it's not like they can just come and take your handbag from you in that sense. That's not a great business. It's hard to market on, hey, we're always about your side when we're kicking your door in to take a handbag from you, you know. Um, so I think as an industry, it is a difficult one. But I think the reality is, is the place where these, uh, the the real revolution that we need to see is fundamentally in the business models of financial services, because while they're in the business of making money off your money, you know, really when you boil financial services down, they need to uh, take in balances and lend out that money, uh, you know, maybe take in balances and give you interest on it and lend that money and, and, and the people pay interest on it. That's fundamentally how banking works, right? You know, it's actually me being able to borrow money at a certain rate and lend money at a much higher rate. Um, and if they keep going that way, you know, punitive charges around overdrafts or, you know, um, a mispayment on a credit card or whatever, um, it sets up much more of a, an antagonistic relationship with customers than really I think is is healthy for people in that sense. So I think business models that move much more to subscriptions and services and uh, being on the same side of the problem as the customer, um, I think are the ones that will be really successful in the future. I mean, I have nothing against buy now, pay later. I've never used it, um, but I do often see it, you know, um, on clothing websites and stuff like that. So whenever I have seen it, I've often thought to myself, oh, I mean, I, I just I can't imagine people getting or buying stuff that they don't need. Um, so I have, I suppose, had somewhat of a negative view on it, but I would I think you spoke about this in one of your latest podcasts, actually, um, talk, like referring or comparing it to when you tap your credit card. Like it's just an easier process and it's perhaps not down to buy now, pay later businesses. It, maybe some responsibility does need to be on the consumer. And that, that did kind of ring home to me saying that, you know, it is difficult living in such a, like materialistic world where things are being forced at you and consumers are thinking they need to have these things. So although I do agree that the consumer does need to take some responsibility, when these younger people who are shopping on things like ASOS and other various websites, you know, this is coming and flashing up to them and then thinking they need all of this stuff at the end of the day, it is difficult. So I, you know, there does need to be regulation around it, but um, yeah, I liked your comparison to, you know, the the easiest, the easiest, the ease of you know just tapping your card and how everybody loves that now and it's just become incorporated into you know people's worlds. So you know, perhaps the buy now pay later schemes will also become a thing and pass later down the line when somebody else something else becomes popular. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, the the um the psychological difference of taking a, a 20 pound note out of your your purse and handing it over or 
just tapping it like even the noise that like that like that's a that's a um positively affirming noise that it makes and it's like oh well that feels nice like i'll do that more you know whereas actually you know taking money and giving it to somebody has real a sense of loss like that thing because you you tap your card i get my card back like it doesn't doesn't feel any lighter or anything you know but i don't get our money back i just get the thing so i i do think there is a uh in a a fully digital world actually where money is just ones and zeros and you know a, a number on a screen then actually bringing the the financial education i think of a of a generation and generations to come is going to have to focus so much more on well how do you give uh, significance to payments when payments are happening all the time like how do you how do you really understand money when you never really see it you know like what is it in that sense and i think this is where the the lines get blurred very much with you know uh, fiat currency and cryptocurrency because for like a, a generation of people who never actually sees physical money then actually well bitcoin and pounds are just like they're just numbers like do you know what i mean like so what does it matter and not just not just you know not just cryptocurrency and fiat currency but like v bucks and so i can buy like you know things that my kids want to buy or when they're you know playing various different games you know i mean it's like actually it's all just money i think is how people kind of see it in this sense um but, but it comes back to what you were saying earlier on around the the issue that comes with that is the risks and controls and the, the the safety nets that people get in that sense are, are very very different because actually you know me paying for a, uh, some shoes on my credit card in pounds is really really different from me you know buying some uh, some ETH and buying them on you know with ETH because like this one I've got literally no comeback in any way shape or form this one I've got you know 300 years of yes spaghetti regulation around section 75 and blah 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 blah, blah but all of it is set up to protect the consumer um and that's really the i think the challenge i think for a lot of those things whether it's you know nfts or cryptocurrency or you know uh you know the the uh, decentralized autonomous uh, organizations the DAOs that people kind of want to set up is uh, yes they are you know new and, and interesting and and exciting but actually, they miss a, a lot of the the heritage that really comes with the protection for consumer in that sense. So, you know, the, we we've got a saying at Eleven FS that digital banking is only one percent finished. Like, and that really for us is the the nod to all of this, which is like the the journey's ahead of us. The next ninety nine percent is super exciting. It's a fantastic time to be working in financial services because of that. Uh, but it does occasionally make you um, make you sort of kind of question everything you know, which I find that really exciting. We're going to touch on the uh, the rest of that 99% a bit later. Uh, but before we do, do you think that fintech poses a risk a risk to, you know, the big banks like HSBC and Barclays? Um, and if so, what do you think that they should be doing about this in order to keep up? Um, yeah, I think it really does. I think it, I think it poses, um, I think not just to the big incumbent banks, but I think fintech poses more of an existential threat to the B2B suppliers, to financial services players as well. Because actually, you know, if you look at banking as an industry, that's one thing. But if you look at the the industry that supports banking, you know, whether it's Microsoft or Google or 
uh, you know, Fiserv and, and Temenos, big incumbent core banking engines. You know, these are multi-billion pound businesses in their own right, and they just support banks, you know, let alone the banks themselves. So I think on a business-to-consumer face, then I think, sure, like Revolut, Starling, Monzo, you know, Chime, Varo, like these guys, I think, really does pose uh, because, look, we've seen them acquire millions and millions of customers and actually their uh, their beachheads, you know, the places that they started their businesses have proven differentiating. And now they're reaching a point of maturity and profitability. So at that point, well, it's just a scale game. Can uh, There's, a, there's a, um, a great book by a guy called Clayton Christensen called Innovator's Dilemma which actually points to this type of arc of change in any industry that will the incumbents gain the understanding of actually how to innovate faster than the startups get to scale. Uh, and ultimately, that's what we're seeing play out in the industry right now is uh, you know billions of pounds by the incumbents being spent trying to figure out what innovation is and how to make it happen. You know, they're very much sort of picking things up and going, well, is this innovation? Like, you know, wait, is 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 this innovative like you know and actually trying to figure out what those things are and they're playing with ai and machine learning and blockchain and all of these things whereas actually we've got startups that are absolutely laser focused about customer problems you know they're using jobs to be done to really understand what the, the brutal realities of day-to-day lives are and they're they're creating services that customers love uh, and scaling incredibly quickly you know new bank over in brazil's got ridiculous amount of customers i think it's like 45 million customers now and uh, that business started like four years ago like, that's crazy right you know you can't tell me that's not having a, a significant impact on the the incumbents um and i'd say every big bank on the planet is uh trying to spend their way out of the the problem and innovate their way out of the problem what i'd sort of say is like you can't kind of back against businesses that have got billions of pounds to waste like actually if you if you could um if you could spend a billion pounds every year and write all of that off and still not deliver the ROI and still be able to spend a billion pounds, then actually you're probably going to be able to succeed in that industry, right? Um, whereas actually from a startup perspective, you know, we've seen banks over in the uh, startup banks in Australia this week, um, one of them shut down because they just couldn't get to a point where they've scaled quick enough to really sustain the size of the organization that they wanted to be. So there'll be failures on both sides. There'll be fintechs that will go bust because they can't reach profitability. There'll be big incumbent banks that can't really adapt to the changing environment and will fail. Um, but this is this is part of a maturing landscape. The exciting thing, I mean, we talked about fintech, we talked about big banks, but increasingly we're seeing gigantic technology organizations straying into financial services as well. You know, Apple have launched a buy now, pay later capability. You know, Google stray in and out of financial services at will with, uh, you know, Google Pay and different things that they've kind of created. Um, I think the, the as we refer to it, the, the battlefield that banking is in right now is more complex and chaotic than ever before. Um, but because of that, again, you know, all of that will lead to, you know, a greater outcome for customers because there's better choice than ever. Like, who do you want to bank with? Do you want to bank with uh, Apple or do you want to bank with Lloyd's Banking Group or do you want to bank with a brand you've never heard of? It's like, well, Apple are going to give me some free AirPods before I bank with them. Cool, I'll bank with Apple. You know I mean? It's like, 
it seems like a complete no-brainer. Like they've and Apple have got more money, they've got a bigger brand, they've got greater connectivity, they know how to ship software. And you could replace Apple with Google or Amazon or whatever. I think that will be the real existential threat to to the big incumbent organizations. You know, Starling are killing it and Ann Bowden's awesome. You know, Monzo have done a great job. But like if Apple really get their game together when it comes to financial services, it's game over. Very exciting times. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it all plays out on this battlefield. Um, so another trend that, you know, you cannot miss um, when opening a newspaper or a news app, I should probably say, is ESG. So how do you think that um, fintech can perhaps aid a, a company's ESG or um, environmental and social initiatives? Yeah, um, I think the difficulty with ESG, if I'm honest with you, is that I don't really think people understand what it means. Um and actually, when you look at the disconnect between, if I said to you right now, uh, should we go kill some baby pandas? You're like, nah, let's not do that. But do you understand how your day-to-day life and your spending behavior impacts that? You know, actually, uh, you just don't. You know, the reality of the my my value system and my aspiration to not kill baby pandas and maybe my spending habits, which are decimating, you know, large parts of forests that are killing baby pandas i just can't correlate those things you know and that might be something as stupid as like hey don't buy your coffee from you know insert coffee brand here uh or it might be that actually that super lovely handbag we buy off asos actually is being manufactured in a place that has really shitty you know human rights um approaches so I don't think people have a good enough correlation between those things. And organizations are starting to, to evidence that, uh, you know, through being able to show whether there is a, uh, an impact from a, you know, your, uh, your moral standard perspective in terms of your spending behavior. And there are fintechs out there that are looking at your transactional activity and, and saying it's like, hey, this thing's questionable if you believe these things or, you know, don't buy your coffee from here because of, you know, it's not free trade or whatever. Um, The other side of that as well, if I'm honest with you, is that, uh, you know, on the day-to-day and the everyday banking stuff, absolutely. But when it comes to uh, investments, you know, usually uh, people talk a really good game about ESG and then fundamentally lose themselves. It's like, well, yeah, I don't want to kill pandas, but actually the best stocks returns are on oil and gas. So like, give me some of those oil and gas returns, you know? Um, and almost everybody thought ESG was somebody else's problem rather than rather than theirs with, when it came to their own, you know, financial lives, their financial habits. Um, I think the thing that we're showing, uh, and whether it's because of it or whether it's um, despite it, um, the investments in green energy, uh, the investments in sustainable uh, manufacturing of electricity. Um, more broadly, uh, are actually yielding much greater returns than the ones that are actually being done into, you know, more, uh, you know, grey energy in terms of, you know, fossil fuels or gas or anything that that comes in that sense. Um, so 
we're at a bit of a tipping point when it comes to to ESG that actually it is both better for us from an environmental perspective, but also better for us in terms of the financial return that we'll get. Um, and because of that, we're seeing, you know, much greater popularity in those things. You know, Goldman Sachs have, you know, moved in a massive way. BlackRock, from an investment perspective, have really tripled down on the green agenda in that sense. Um, and I think we, as I say, I think we're at the point now where it's not just, you know, greenwashing when it comes to uh, carbon offsetting and those types of things, which is, essentially carbon offsetting is like one of the biggest like facades ever, really, because basically what it's saying is that if you pay a massive tax bill, you can get out of this problem, which is just crazy. That's not like doing good. That's just like paying, you know, paying a debt, really, in that sense. Um, but now you can actually, you know, do good and do good in that sense, which I think is making it much more of a mainstream offering. I think people will start to uh, make decisions based on those things. Uh, with regards to like, well, I'm not going to buy clothes from this shop. I'm going to buy them from this shop because essentially they're more sustainable or the cotton is produced in a better way or whatever. Um, but all of that requires education and information in order to make those decisions more effectively. Excellent. Thank you very much for explaining that. Um, do you think that cryptocurrency will ever become a legal tender in the UK? I think in order for that to happen, some sort of poke like apocalyptic event would have needed to have taken place um because actually all of the all of the processes and governance and structure that we've got in the uk or pretty much every you know really developed territory requires central management and regulation of the currency um, you know, capital liquidity and li the liquidity system more broadly in terms of money moving around the system is something that doesn't happen by accident. It's something that is actively managed and maintained. You know, like we've literally got the Bank of England constantly looking at the liquidity rates in the, in the, uh, the, the UK system to make sure that actually the money is moving around the system. The problems we get into, you know, as we saw with 2008 is when uh, the money stops moving around the system and therefore, you know, the system breaks. <laughs> um, so why would we move to cryptocurrency as a as a centralized thing only if the pound had failed? Like actually, if you look at any uh, geo where cryptocurrency looks like a, you know, cryptocurrency as a thing to pin your uh, currency to is madness given how much it fluctuates. But if you think about the, the hyperinflation that happens in some geos, then cryptocurrency looks like a safer bet, you know? Um, so I, I really doubt it. Uh, I really, really doubt it. Digital, a digital pound, uh, I, I think inevitably physical money will disappear because it's sort of irrelevant, really. There's no, there's no good use case really for, for physical money other than, anonymity in terms of actually what you're doing or where you're putting it you know and I, I kind of feel like actually there are better ways of addressing that problem whether you know there is not enough physical cash in the uk for everybody to cash out their money so physical money has kind of become a secondary thing anyway as it stands right now so i think it's much more likely that just digital currencies will become absolutely mainstream Bitcoin, I don't think, has the potential to to be that just because of the the sort of slightly anarchistic 
um, you know, mantras and mentalities of the people that are perpetuating it, really. Um, I think we will see the Bank of England go much more direct on, on central digital currencies. Um, and that will essentially just be the, the long-term replacement, I think, for, for the physical pound. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of benefits to, you know, cryptocurrency in terms of what it can do. Um, but I'm not sure as a, as a physical, uh, um, as a literal currency, you know, I'm not sure you're going to go down to the shops and spend, you know, your money in Bitcoin. Um, I think the ability for Bitcoin to be, uh, thought of less of a currency, more as a digital asset, I, I think does have potential in that sense. Um, but there's a hell of a long way for us to get to a point where it's, it's mainstream in enough sense that actually, you know, we'll be using our, in our, our day-to-day lives. You mentioned you do think there are some benefits to it. What, if you could name like the the number one benefit that you think it could have in terms of this, what would you say that is? Um, it sort of depends on who you are. You know, the point that I said earlier on around anonymity of, uh, of um, transactions, well, Bitcoin's actually pretty good for that. You know, uh, actually... You know, the way in which distributed ledger technology works, having a fully immutable log of those transactions and everything that goes through that. Actually, if you're trying to prove an event happened, but be able to hide the identity of the people who it actually took place with, well, in certain circumstances, if you want to buy something and not be not be known, well, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't. Um, I think there are many there are many different use cases for um, for cryptocurrency, but I actually I think the underlying technology, so distributed ledger technology, has has great applications. You know, I think that probably the main the main and most obvious one is about the applications to identity, uh, which is a huge you know a huge problem. What distributed ledger technology is really good for is sharing and revoking access to data without giving access to all of the data. So you know, actually. You could use the an identity capability on a on uh, based on DLT to give a yes or no answer to questions. You know, it can give you: Do I need to give you my date of birth so you can hold that information forever, or can I just post against a, an identity scheme to say yes, this person is eighteen, give them access to the whatever they want to get access to? Um, so I think it's cases like that where look, if we are going to move from a societal perspective to a a fully digital society, then some of those underpinning, you know, fabric level changes when it comes to identity or currency or all of these things do need to evolve to be to be really rigorous for, you know, 2022 and beyond. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, so you've mentioned in the episode um, that digital financial services are only 1% finished. And of course, this is what 11FS um, go by as well. And that you're building the most talented and passionate team in fintech to help build the other 99%. What will digital services look like once that 99% is complete? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't think we'll ever get to 100%. Um, you know, we, we've joked about this a number of times before, and it goes back to the things that we've um, we said at the top of this in terms of mentality, like... For us, digital being digital banking being one percent finished is a is a mindset. It is a uh, kind of a provocation that actually there's more of this journey ahead of us than behind us. And for the organisations who think it's a hundred percent, 
they're deeply wrong. Uh, so, so in that sense, I don't think we'll ever get to 100. percent I think what the future of the industry really looks like for me, though, is actually back to my points earlier on around Deliveroo and Uber and and all those organisations, which is actually. I don't really care about financial services. I want a financial services organization to care about it. I want them to care about it so much that actually they will make me better off. Because if they're worrying about it more than I am, and they're smarter than I am when it comes to financial services, well, actually, that's a great outcome for me and probably one that I will pay them to to do. Um, so, you know, I think we we live in a world where, you know, uh, robots can land planes or conduct uh, minor surgeries or you know autonomous vehicles are, are parking and driving themselves so actually algorithms will start to change how financial services is done by making people better off on a day-to-day basis so what advice can you give to aspiring fintech entrepreneurs and also fintech lawyers fintech lawyers um i mean i'd say um fintech entrepreneurs is like find a real customer problem um and um and really, you know, ride around in that as much as you can. Um, there's been a huge amount of opportunity, you know, tapped up from fintech, but there's still masses of opportunity left on the table that actually big incumbent organizations are really struggling to get to grips with. So talk to as many customers as you can, really understand what the brutal realities of their day-to-day lives actually are, uh, and then get fixated on solving those problems. That is where success really lies. Uh, if you talk to somebody like Patrick Collinson from Stripe, you know his mantra is always just talk to customers and do what they say. Uh, and it's and there's a lot of there's a there's nuance in that because if you look at the you know uh, Henry Ford quotes of like you know if I ask my customers they just want faster horses thing, but actually if you listen to the problems that customers have got rather than ask them what they want, then essentially there is just so much untapped capability, untapped opportunity there. Um, I think from a lawyer perspective, I mean, look, we're in a complex, chaotic, fast-moving industry. There is uh, tightropes and problems everywhere. Uh, you know, from a lawyer perspective, I mean, scaling fintechs and all of the things that come with building a new business, there is all sorts of problems that, um, you know, founders and businesses are sort of getting themselves into and out of. So I would say, actually, there is a massive opportunity for people uh, from a, a legal and a lawyer perspective to to get into this industry and and really help organizations to to navigate those problems. So the future of fintech and financial services is incredibly exciting and going by what you just said, um, it sounds like we'll be fortunate enough to see some big transformations and disruptions in the industry in the near future. Um, so before I let you go, um, I thought it would be fun to end the episode with any final words of wisdom that you have for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the only thing I would add from, a, a you know, shaping out any modicum of wisdom I could drag out of like my career type thing is it's never too late to try hard. Like, actually, I left it quite late in terms of my uh, switch of career and you know, understanding that the the attitude, the effort was the thing that really separated the good from the great. Um, so if you think it's too late, it's not. Uh, if you think actually everybody else is smarter, they're not. They just work hard. Um, and I'd say, going back to what I said earlier on, the great thing about realizing that attitude and effort is the most important thing is most of those things are in your control. So, uh, so yeah, work hard, work smart, but you've got to put in the work.
Yeah, amazing. Um, do you ever listen to the Gary V uh, podcasts? Anything that he does? Yeah, I know Gary. Yeah, oh, we, we've had Gary on our on our podcast before. He's a super super smart guy, like super high energy. I, me and Jason uh, interviewed him, and uh, I think we got a like a contact high from him for like uh, five years off the back of it because he's just so high energy. Amazing, but uh, but no, he's a nice nice chap. Yeah, one thing that something that you just said actually reminded me of something that he often says um, about it's never too late. And, you know, people when they're in their late 20s or 30s think they need to have everything done by then. But he's like, dude, like you've just lived 30 years. You've got another two of those to go. So, you know, and that's minimum as well. Like if you live, live a long life, um, yeah. what are you worried about? Like you've got another two goes of what you've just done. So um, definitely, well, and, and having the patience to understand that actually you've got all of that ahead of you, you know, it gives you a, a different perspective on how harsh you treat yourself or, you know, those around you in that sense. It's um, I think there's a, a real um, societal thing around empathy for other people, but so few people treat themselves in a way that they would want to be, you know, treated by other people. So for your own, you know, mental health perspective, it's like, um, you know, be nice to yourself and then have some patience, have some empathy and, you know, give yourself the time to succeed. Excellent. Well, thank you for leaving us on that high. Um, and I just wanted to say that I feel extremely fortunate to have been, you know, chatting to you for the past hour or so. Um I mean, I've been listening to the 11FS podcast for, I don't know how long it's been, perhaps two years. And I can safely say that it has been um, a key contributor to developing my commercial awareness. Um, and, you know, you it, it, as I've said before in this podcast, financial services and fintech is a very complex topic. And what I love about 11FS is you guys break it down into um like easy to understand bites if you like and have you know a really fun time doing it as well like it's really enjoyable to listen to so I just wanted to say thank you for that and to all of our listeners um it's definitely worth checking out 11fs podcast because it is incredible so thank you very no much. worries well I'm I'm glad you get value from it I mean we we try and put it out to to help people to give them the opportunity to to listen to the conversations we're really lucky to have you know the uh, but the best payback you can do on that is uh, I appreciate your thanks but like you know take that knowledge go do something awesome um and then when you're rich and famous let me know like, that would be a great uh, great thing to do so uh go do something awesome thank you hopefully that won't be too long away um but you know watch this space i'm sure we're um getting to work together again in the future Uh, So thank you for being a wonderful guest and sharing your invaluable knowledge with us at The Student Lawyer. Um, And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of The Student Lawyer and we'll see you back again here next time. To hear more of The Student Lawyer's podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. 